0: listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, the other arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. Well, hello, everybody. This is Cliff Berrickman, and normally I would be saying, hey, Bobes, what's happening? And he'd be going, oh, not that much, Cliff, how you doing? But the thing is, um, it's going to be Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff. And not Bobo this evening. Don't worry, nothing's wrong. Bobo's totally fine. He's healthy, etc. But uh, the fact is, apparently, there was a Sasquatch sighting earlier today. And Bobo got the call. So uh, I got a call from Bobo about 20 minutes ago. And apparently, he has to miss the recording session today. So again, it's just Bigfoot and Beyond with just Cliff not Bobo tonight. I'm so sorry. Um, So I guess no Bobo story time, although I can probably make something up for y'all. But anyway, you get the gist. Um, They'll tell you a little bit about this sighting. I don't know that much. I'm going to talk to Bobo tomorrow, and I imagine we'll be speaking later in the week and telling you about this, our other listeners. Uh, But apparently, uh, from what I gather, about three o'clock this afternoon, somebody uh, west of Willow Creek in Northern California saw a Sasquatch on their property. Bobo got the call. He said it out there with thermal imagers as we speak. He has about 50 pounds of plaster because yesterday it was raining really well. Um, By the way, today, uh, not the day you're listening, but it is the 7th of December. So 7th of December, around 3 o'clock from what I understand. Somebody saw a Sasquatch west of Willow Creek. Bobo is en route, and we'll see what he comes up with. Um, And you know what, sometimes that happens. You remember a couple months ago, I had to disappear to the Olympic Peninsula for something. Um, Bobo covered for me uh, when he interviewed Mel Scahan because of the fires. And now it's my turn to carry some of the load for Bobo. Let's see what else is going on here. So, I guess a lot of you guys picked up that uh, Monkey has passed. Bobo had to put Monkey down, which is unfortunate. That's also hit the social media, and a lot of uh, um, tears and well wishing have been flooding in for Bobo, which uh, he really, really appreciates. He wanted me to let you guys know that. It's very kind of everybody to kind of participate because we are a Bigfoot family in a way. Um, and other than that, I don't know, man, it has been kind of slow at the museum. Uh, uh, we have a new, uh, online store out there, so you can get a lot of our products online. Now, if you're looking for something for Christmas, we of course appreciate the business and all that sort of stuff. And, um, uh, looking forward to putting 2020 behind us, they say 2020 or hindsight is 2020. And I'll tell you, I can't wait till this year is in hindsight because it's been a hell of a year, but we have more exciting things to talk about right now than just all that stuff. Um, we have a great guest on tonight. Um, he wants to le- keep some level of anonymity. So we're just going to refer to him as Saul. Okay. Um, no last name and no identifying marks on that one. Yeah, his name is Saul. And... Uh, I met this guy a few years ago at Squatch Fest in Longview, Kelso, you know, that area in Washington. Once a year, uh, the, the Kelso Chamber of Commerce puts on a Bigfoot festival in Longview and Kelso, the um, kind of neighboring cities. and it's a great festival. It's been going on for a number of years now. Um, uh, I've been speaking there for the last couple of years, the Olympic Project, you know Derek and those guys have been out there. Derek and uh, uh, the whole gang really. Dr. Meldrum's been out there. Um, speaking. It's just been a great event. Um, a lot of vendors and a lot of fun. They have a beer garden, so a lot of people disappear in there and never come back out. I'm sure some of you guys have done that as well. Um, you know, Shane Corson has been doing a lot of stuff out there. So anyway, a lot of the guests we've had the last couple of years. But anyway, I met this guy out there because he was helping Bob Pyle with his booth, um, and uh, he uh, Saul is good friends with Bob Pyle and. Basically, we got introduced and we hit it off. You know, he's kind of a Bigfoot aficionado and I tend to get along with those kinds of people. But yeah, he and I have been friends ever since. Um, He's an environmental geologist with a background in restoration work, basically land restoration. But um, really, don't listen to me blab about it. Let's just uh, listen to Saul himself. So Saul, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo, but
1: not tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Cliff. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Uh, well, thank you for coming on. I know that um, we've been kind of kicking things back and forth for probably over a year now, wondering when we're going to get you on here to talk because you have such an interesting perspective and interesting work and interesting, frankly, interactions with these Bigfoot things. Um, but before we get to that, we got to cover the basis in the background, put,
1: put some context on you. Do you consider yourself a Bigfooter in general? Well, I definitely, I've been interested in Bigfoot since I was a child. Um, and it was an interest to me uh, through college as well. Um, but as far as a Bigfooter, like you often think of it in the quote unquote Bigfoot scene, um, I've never been the type that goes out into the wilderness searching. I don't go to hot spots or anything like that. Just my life has been such as an adult that that, that's not been practical for me. And so most of my uh, study of Bigfoot has come through the online, the BFRO uh, report database and listening to podcasts uh, where there's witnesses talking about it. And that's kind of been most of my interest. I haven't really done all the Sasquatch conferences or things like that. So I'm a little bit of an outsider um, and I definitely wouldn't be here with you if it weren't for the fact that this property that I manage, you know, has such interesting things happening on it.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's what that's, I know that you and I text back and forth or give a call every once in a while when something weird happens out there. Um, it, it's a really interesting location. Um, uh, I know stuff happens there because I have witness reports from very close by, where, where the property is. And we're not going to disclose where this is, by the way, listeners. I'm sorry. We're just going to suffice it to say Southwest Washington. It's a big enough area that, you know, you, go, you can find lots of Sasquatches there and they're probably not salts. But um, to back up a little bit, what, what are your earliest memories of you being, uh, uh, you know, even moderately interested in Sasquatches like as a little boy?
1: Well, I'm 44 and I, I've heard this a lot on on Sasquatch podcasts, people of my age we grew up with all the everything on cable, you know, all the different Bigfoot shows and and all that. But the main thing, I was really a loner as a child, and there was one little section in the library that had all kinds of paranormal stuff, um, and I was so I was always drawn into that. Well, I'm actually from North Dakota, which you may know is oftentimes considered to be a, a hotspot for UFOs. And so, you know, I grew up like I had relatives that saw UFOs and you'd hear these stories about Minot Air Force Base. And so that just always kind of fascinated me, um, you know, it, but I was also really into science and I loved the space program. I remember ordering materials from NASA, you know, and that that was before the Internet. So they would send you out all this different material. So that that really kind of is, I guess, the melding of 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 how all this began was I was interested in the paranormal as a child, but then also interested in science. Um, And I would say that kind of I, it was a you know an exciting thing that I always loved to to read about. but it wasn't like, like I say, I wasn't out there every weekend searching or anything. But when I was in college, um, I mean, you remember Art Bell in the in the 90s, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so, you know, I was a young man when that was on. And when I first started listening to him, boy, I loved all that kind of stuff. And then when I got to college, I, I became very skeptical. Um, And, you know, there was so much on there where I was like, wow, you know, I really have a hard time believing this. Um, And, you know, when you put your mind into the hard sciences like geology, it, it just... You know, the, your, your standard of proof becomes much higher. And so there was a lot of things during that time where I became much more skeptical of. But then there was this one day when I was in ecology class, because environmental geology, it's, you've got your earth sciences component and then you've got your living sciences. So we, we're a, you know, a multidisciplinary field. And you have to know how to blend those two together to do this type of work. And when I was in that ecology class, at one point they started talking about something that would, be pertinent if you were, say, getting a degree in, in uh, wildlife biology. And they were talking about if they, you know, when we have regulations in this country as far as how many deer you can hunt or any of these animals or how much you can log based on what's there and, and this and that, people are making estimates of what they think is out there. There's not a, a staff of people that is counting every last deer or elk or bird or anything. I mean, there might be some of that in very large. Limited numbers and small populations of things, but overall, um, our government is making estimates when they when they make these decisions. And so, what I was learning in this class was okay. Based on X number of footprints you find in this size area, and then use this formula to extend it out, and we can take a best guess example based on this that there's this many over here. And I thought, you know, that's crazy. Because we're told all the time that footprints and other forms of sign aren't evidence. And yet we are, as the underpinning of much of our wildlife regulatory regime, obviously are relying heavily on footprints. And so that was the sort of thing in college where I'm like, yeah, you know, th- th- Sasquatch is one thing I'm not going to to walk away from, you know, th- that that kind of it gave me confidence that there really was something to this. And, and I've just kind of stayed there. I mean, that's 20 years ago, but you know, that, that's really kind of what I guess kept me going. How did you stumble across Bob Pyle? Well, yeah, the uh, Bob and then giants in the trees they, that that's actually why I was at the, the conference where I met you because um, members of giants in the trees and Bob Pyle and myself, were all Grangers and I don't know if your uh, listeners, some of them probably know. You'll see like the old grange halls in small towns. It's like a fraternal organization for country folk. It's like a central meeting place for rural communities, essentially for for lo- forever, right? Exactly. Yeah, going back well over a hundred years. Um, and so that's I just I joined the grange when. I started this project out there. Um, I thought it was interesting. I would meet different people. I would be able to integrate into the community and all of that happened. I mean, I absolutely love the Grange. It just so happens that we have Bob Pyle giving us lectures. And then of course um, the members of giants in the trees, you know, I I was working with them doing photography and a little bit of of video work. Um, And so that kind of all came together at that, at that conference.
0: So, uh, and did you know that Bob had written a book on Sasquatches when you first met him or did that come out later?
1: You know, I don't really know if I did. I mean, that's kind of the thing is I wasn't really super immersed in it. I I don't think I knew every name of people, you know, like I wasn't really that into it. Like I always loved reading the reports and kind of speculating about things and I found it interesting, but I don't, I, I didn't get that deeply involved in it, you know? And until these things started to happen. And then it went from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's get on to that. So your present occupation out there, it, how, how would you
1: describe that to our listeners? Well, as far as the uh, the Sasquatch um, is concerned and kind of what we do. Um, yeah. My background, like I say, is it's, it's all pretty mundane. So if you imagine, you know, um, environmental geologists deal with things like erosion, preventing erosion. So, Um, My first position really as a professional in the environmental field in college, just through internships, was things like wetland restoration and helping farmers that were um, losing land to, to, you know, the streams and flooding and those sorts of issues. So environmental geology is a very pragmatic field where we, you know, there's real things we're trying to achieve. We don't want the farmer to lose another half acre next year when the when the snow melts it's it's that sort of thing um or we're trying to restore some wetlands for uh, wildlife um it's and and you have to do all this you know make all the maps that was one of the first things that i did so you're doing all kinds of survey work and that kind of stuff um and so that, that that's really what i brought to um the project out there. And then on top of it, I had done uh, contract work as an environmental consultant for government agencies and banks, uh, different corporate entities, where I did environmental site assessments. Some of your uh, listeners may have had to have one of those if they've ever bought or sold a commercial property, but it's essentially where you go in and you reconstruct the infrastructure, the development, the use of a property. So you kind of know what hazards are there and what you're getting into. And so those are the skills that I brought in. I I came in and it took me quite a while to really dig down into what had happened at that property Um, using different methods like aerial photography and then, of course, on-site analysis and everything. Um, But that's what really kind of, you know, when I first took a look at that and I said, okay, we've got to do this kind of stuff. Like I said, it's mostly mundane things like we've got to stabilize this and you know this is going to keep washing out and there's all kinds of geologic issues going on on the property and that that's when I started looking back through it and kind of led into what I eventually figured out or just really surprised me about seemingly Sasquatch showing up was over the course of time this was such a degraded um, piece of land that it's kind of incredible and it says something about the uh, adaptability of Sasquatch, that they are still coming here, despite all the radical land use changes over time.
0: Now, when you say coming here, do you mean this particular plot of property or the general vicinity? Or Yeah,
1: yeah, the general vicinity, but also, like I say, uh, the, the property itself, because it was essentially scraped clean, um, where they were just moving material around down in that valley like it was a sandbox. You know, and so that's kind of the thing that's fascinating to me is when I when I started working up there, I really had the impression that most Sasquatch probably lived way off in the woods and were repulsed by people. Um, and, And that was my first impression going up there. You know, a lot of people, when they see the Pacific Northwest, if they haven't spent a lot of time in the woods, they look out across the hills and they see, oh, all this green, you know, a carpet of green forests. But oftentimes underneath that thin veneer of green at the top, everything is dead. I mean, as far as the limbs on the trees, that's why we get these forest or fire ladders during fire season now. It's because the way that we uh, plant trees to log, we get them real close together. So they go up real straight and they don't have a lot of limbs. You know, that's good for things like having wood that is uh, homogenous to run through a mill, but it's not necessarily good for withstanding fire. Um, and so I kind of looked around down through the woods, and y- you look down there and you see, geez, you know, there's everything is kind of brown and dead, and there's not much variation. And what would ever want to be here? And so that's kind of what surprised me was that was my initial assessment. You know, then I started studying the history of the property, seeing how just radically disturbed it really had been. Um, and, but then yet to have these, you know, despite what I thought was started having these bizarre sort of, uh, things happen that I couldn't quite explain. And then I had to kind of come in and backfill the information, so to speak, and go, well, if despite what I thought these things are happening, because there's potentially this creature or creatures here, now I've got to explain how on earth they can even be here. What is it they're eating? What is it they like about here? How are they moving through the woods? Um, you know, what, what have they adapted to over the years? And what does that say about their species?
0: Yeah, so you were basically hired to come in and rehabilitate this plot of land, um, and in doing so, you discovered like th- through you know human meddling, it had been kind of unnaturalified, I guess. Um, so as you start looking at the land and then thinking about okay now what path do we take forward to make this more natural, um, have you, you start uh, weird weird things start happening. You start connecting the dots, thinking about Bigfoot. Had you and I know we've we've spent a lot of time talking privately about this, but had you started to introduce the um, the uh,
1: the native food supply at that point, or did that come later? Now that was very close to the beginning. I mean, I'm from, like I say, I'm from the Northern Plains. My family were farmers and all that. And so I kind of bring that into um, my restoration work that the the idea of like my grandmother, you know, I grew up, she always, they would go pick and and can uh, June berries and choke cherries, you know, wild berries were a big part of my childhood. I mean, there was nothing like grandma's Juneberry jam, you know? Um, And so, when I kind of got in and had a choice about it, about, you know, what type of plants I wanted to put in, you know, I planted native June berries. Um, we put in different varieties of native roses so that the, the rose hips would be available in the winter. Um, you know, we started putting edible wetland plants in, which is not a, it's not a big thing that you don't see that a lot in restoration projects. You know, a lot of restoration projects that you see, I mean, I've got a background working with all the big name, environmental nonprofits that you can rattle off and all sorts of different government agencies. And, you know, yeah, there is some emphasis on forage and whatever, but a lot of times the agencies, you know, willow stakes are cheap. And they're native, you know, um, and so that there's kind of a lot of that, like, they're not necessarily thinking about berries and, and and all of that. They're kind of they're if you're talking about bank stabilization, it's like, OK, get those willow stakes in the ground. But just kind of who I am. And my family background and everything, I really wanted to get as many edibles in there as possible as far as new plantings. But the other thing that evolved over time was trying to enhance the plants that are there. So, for instance, red huckleberry is a plant that the, uh, of course, the berries are edible and they're a commercial product. Um, but also the leaves are edible and we have like these big, huge red huckleberry gardens because they grow on the old stumps, um, but red huckleberries like sun. And so when you have like alder trees kind of take over everything, they'll, they'll kill off not just the conifers, but they'll kill off all these huckleberry gardens as well. Um, so, you know, we did things to enhance what was already had been there, which had Probably been there for you know who knows how many thousands of years red huckleberries have grown on that property, um, but enhancing them by doing you know very selective thinning, very kind of targeted thinning in order to help certain species like that thrive and kind of take out some of the portions of the community that are kind of dominating and kind of killing everything off. And so that is kind of a, a couple different things that that we did in that respect in order to start improving on the property.
0: What were your first in, uh, uh, inklings that uh, Sasquatches were popping around? I mean, now that you look back, you probably didn't realize it as it was happening. But now that you've ha- you have a little bit of uh, hindsight, looking back, what were your first hints that Bigfoots were popping by?
1: Well, I mean, I the, the first thing that we had, it was definitely like, what the heck was that? I mean, I had seen like even like the first time that I went up there, I was like, well, there's something moving through the brush here because you would kind of see spots going down into the woods. Um, and you're like, well, there's game trails, you know, but you don't know. I mean, we got elk out here, you know, all kinds of, you know, of course there's black bears and different things. Um, so again, while I didn't think, Hey, well, look, a Sasquatch trail, you know, I did notice some of this stuff, like you say, and then on hindsight, you're like, okay. (laughs) But the first big thing that happened was my wife and I were walking up our uh, gravel road and we heard this deep guttural growl thing. That I could feel it in my forehead. I mean, I I don't know that I've ever had an experience like that in my life before. And we both we didn't say anything. We just turned right around and walked down the hill, got in our vehicle, and and left. Um, <laughs> and and we we actually went. Uh, to town and sat there and listened to all these wildlife recordings to try to figure out what it was. And, you know, we couldn't connect it to any of the known animals that you would expect to have around there. And it was just such a big sound, you know, and it was, it was right in a certain spot where uh, would be perfect for an ambush predator to be hanging out because there's all these deer trails through there and they can kind of sit just right off the trail. And here comes, here comes dinner, you know, Um, and so it kind of made sense that they were there and that was really kind of the first big thing. And then we had like one of the things we were doing early on is we were trying to uh, remove invasive species and and get natives in there. Um, and so we had this area that was kind of down in almost like a gulch and we had cleared all these blackberries through there. You know, we've been working for days on that. And one day I came back and there's this beer bottle on the slope where we had just cleared. And it's like, I know there wasn't a beer bottle there, you know, like I'm I'm doing environmental restoration where I, I, I pick up the beer bottles and I'm like, that's kind of crazy how I got there. And I, and I thought, well, that's kind of weird, but I guess someone just chucked it down there, you know, and I kind of just didn't think too much about it past that. Well, I go back up on top and I've got my tools all locked up and everything. And on my lock, there was this blade of grass that had been like shoved through, I'm not sure what you call like the, you know, the half circle part of the, of the lock. And it's like, well, how did wind get that through there? You know, like that's, I mean, I, you know, coming from the the prairie, I've seen some pretty big windstorms and I can't remember ever seeing, a. Uh, piece of like a long piece of grass like shoved through a lock like that you know and so i just thought that was weird and then i went back down and and kind of took a a better look at the beer bottle and and i realized that the brand it was i have picked up many beer bottles along that gravel road that for years people had chucked into the woods and when i was doing you know my initial cleaning and whatever through there i had picked up all kinds of, of beer cans and this was a brand that I had not seen before and so I was like well that is kind of weird but you know as a geologist I pay a lot of attention to weathering patterns and the thing that I noticed about this bottle was that it it, it wasn't weathered like it had been outside for a long time but it definitely wasn't shiny and new it, it looked like it was older but it had been protected from the elements it was the label still on it? Yeah, so the label's still on it, and that's basically what I'm describing. Is the label wasn't new; it was older, but it it definitely had not been outdoors. Okay. Well, be-
0: being a, a beer fan myself, can you tell us what brand it was? It was a Deschutes. A
1: Deschutes. Okay, gotcha. Well, Bigfoot's probably like good beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But at that time, I don't know if you've ever seen these. There's, um, they they make like uh, earth bag huts where you you like fill bags full of material, then you can use bottles and stuff to kind of fill it in. So we were going to make one of these kind of like earth huts in the woods there. And so we had taken these bags of bottles and we just kind of had them setting in the woods and we were going to eventually use them. And I went and checked those bags and three of them were still completely tied off and one was open and you could tell, you know, if you have a big like bag of bottles, like the way that it settles, there's not going to be a cavity in there in like the shape and size of one bottle. You know, th- they're going to settle down in a way that it's it's pretty, you know, more or less like smooth, kind of on the top almost. You, you kind of follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. And the way this was, you could tell it was like the the bottles had already settled when the bag was placed there. And they were kind of all in their position. But then you could see this this one cavity, so to speak, where like that one where one bottle had been removed off that one open bag. And placed on that stump down below where you had been working the previous day. Yeah. And chucked down into that gully, you know. And so that's what weirded me out was I'm like, well, who's going to do that? I mean, I guess, you know, it could have been a person because that is along the gravel road and everything. But I mean, that seems like a kind of petty thing to do to like, you know, pick one bottle out and walk all the way down there and throw it all the way down there. I mean, I don't know.
0: But you're still thinking people at this point though.
1: Yeah. I just thought it was interesting because I hadn't had a lot of other experiences, you know, but like you say, like looking back, yeah, you can see it, but I wasn't sure. And I wasn't going to, you know, stake my reputation on it because um you know i mean i have a professional reputation in, in natural resources and uh you know like i said i have a pretty high standard for what i consider to be evidence and so that was just it was kind of interesting but who knows at that point you know um and then it it, it wasn't until later where we started having a, a few more things started happening with the dog um for instance we had um I I would stay up there with just me and the dog and we would have different things happen that were difficult to explain. And then, you know, we've heard sounds, different, different types of sounds that seem to be happening kind of for a reason. Um, And I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, have you seen a Bigfoot? No, I haven't. And a big part of why that is is because uh, most of the time I'm up there by myself, and I don't want to see one. And they've seemingly made it pretty clear to me that they would prefer to have me and the dog inside. And so, you know, I'm not the type of Bigfoot researcher. I'm sure a lot of people hear this and think I'm crazy, like because of course they would be out there, you know, doing their thing, but. I just kind of hide inside, honestly, because when I'm alone out there, the idea of an eight foot um, biped, uh, you know, hominid out there is, is honestly a little terrifying to me. <laughs> and so while I, I, I find it all interesting and fascinating and all that, um, you know, my focus is more on, on their habitat and what these implications are for human evolution for future land use uh what what their survival of all of these land use changes uh, can tell us about their species like i'm not there to prove them you know i don't have all kinds of trail cams up i don't do wood knocking i'm not wandering around the woods with big floodlights at night like i don't do that kind of stuff um and I mean, I hope they appreciate it, and they. It certainly seems like with the way that they seemingly bring me gifts that I don't know. They, I, I guess, my feeling is they like me to a certain extent. I know that sounds crazy, but, and that's kind of just part of my contract with them. Is they've made it clear that they would prefer to have me inside at those times, and so I comply. You know.
0: Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that. Because um, I mean, how long I've known you, for t- at least a year or two. Right. I don't know how long my, my sense of time is so elastic.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a couple of years.
0: Yeah. And I, I hear from you every three or four months or two or three months or something. I said, Hey Cliff, have you ever heard of this before? Like, and then you give me this, like this circumstance that is just like, like, yeah, I've heard of it before, but how did you know about that? You know, that kind of thing that these weird subtle interactions. And, and I think that um, I think you frankly, you've been very successful um, in in um, cultivating a relationship with the local Bigfoots, because you have such a soft hand about the whole thing, you know, you're not out there screaming and banging on trees and doing all that stuff, like you know, like the finding Bigfoot thing, by the way, which um, people should know. I don't do to my normal spots. You know, when I go bigfooting in my in Mountain Hood National Forest, that's not the way you do it necessarily. That's the way you do it if you want to go in quick and dirty and try to get something fast. You know, because on the TV show, we got we got six hours at a place. Where there's been Bigfoot activity, let's see if we get some sort of interaction because we got cameras on us. But you 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 spend a lot of time out at this property that you're managing, um, and that that would be a great way to go in screaming and banging on trees to shut the whole thing down and to make the Bigfoots know that this guy's a maniac. Look at him; he's banging on trees and screaming. Yeah, but but you do something totally different. You let them have their space, and they know that inside the cabin's yours, outside the cabin is theirs. Once once the light goes out. Um, and they're reciprocating what you're doing there. They bring things to you that you have this interactive thing going on that I'm confident is being perpetrated by Sasquatches. Um, and it's a very rare circumstance that gives you some really, uh, unique and unusual opportunities to study their behaviors.
1: Yeah. And there is, and that's why we're called Skookum Scarp Sanctuaries because we have this, uh, you know, this ridgeline scarp, Uh, on the property. And we have portions where, I mean, as long as I have control, it's going to stay uh, no people, you know, we've got parts of the property again, where I don't want people, including myself to go ever. Like I want these creatures to be able to feel like, wow, there's one part where we absolutely don't have to worry about Anybody coming through here, you know, and you're right about that. And I would say one thing about it. um, You know, when I do this very delicate uh, forest restoration where I, you know, clear off the dead limbs and, you know, take a couple trees out here and there and the light kind of comes through again. You can clearly tell after a very short amount of time where I've worked because everything becomes green. You know, so if you're a Sasquatch and you're that in tune to your environment and you see kind of everything else that's going on where, you know, here there's a clear cut and over there they're putting in a new agricultural field and, you know, on and on and on, you see all of this kind of destruction or just neglect. You know, a lot of our woods are just completely neglected. And then you see one person who's like slowly working through the woods and kind of everywhere he goes, it greens up a little bit. I, I just think that they've, they're they aware enough that they notice that and they know my intention and, and they know that I'm not interested in, you know, like I said, catching them at night or anything like that.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories.
1: Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora.
0: I remember one of our conversations, I think that time we went out to lunch or whatever, I think I, I think I commented to you that a lot of times in this sort of gifting exchange that you're finding yourself in the middle of, they give you junk. And they give you trash. Um, and I, I and I try to always put myself in the mind of the Sasquatch, which is really hard to do, of course. Um, but I, I, I often wonder, it's like, okay, they're wandering around the woods, and they're surrounded by this natural landscape of beauty, et cetera. And then they see, you know, like a beer bottle or, you know, a, a I don't know, a car fender or something like that. Um, and they say, well... That's not really supposed to be here. It's those human things that bring that kind of stuff here. And I often wonder, like, when you get a gift like that, if you want to call it a gift, and I think it's an appropriate word, um, I think it's like, oh, that's a human thing. Humans like that. I'm going to give them some of that junk because they sure like that stuff. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, uh, but you've, you've also been getting other sort of things on the property, basically
1: bones. I hear a lot about deer bones and whatnot from you. Yeah, I, I mean, and this leads into all sorts of different issues. Um, you know, personally, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to just kind of talk a little bit about what uh, their sort of food habits, I believe, are, um, because in order to really, for me to explain how something that big with this very large, uh, you know, need for for calories all the time, I don't think that these creatures have a lot of uh, room for mistakes. I think that they. just like you probably know every grocery store for, you know, the next three towns over. And you could, if, you know, if I say that to you right now, you can probably imagine in your mind all the different uh, restaurants and grocery stores in between you and Portland, you know, Um, because humans are, are hardwired to kind of remember that. And so I think that these creatures, I don't think that they're just kind of randomly roaming because I think they can get in trouble really quick. I think, each little valley, they have a really good idea of how many deer are there, um, what the vegetation is, uh, uh, all of that. And, and these food sources, of course, vary widely depending on season and, and all of that. But I think that they they come through and I think they, they really monitor things like the, uh, the deer population. Um, and I also think that as far as gifting is concerned, you know... It, I think that a lot of there's 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 this variation with them that there are some of these creatures that probably for a long time, um, you know, because we were not that far from what was a, a Chinook settlement on the river there. And I believe that these creatures have been accustomed to people for a very long time that, you know, as kleptoparasites, they were probably raiding the indigenous people there for thousands of years, I think that they kind of view us as just a blip because they've been coming back and forth. Um, But I think that they, you know, for instance, they have to know when they're in an area to hunt deer, that there's kind of enough vegetation for them to munch on, for them to even get to that point of being the ambush predator. And so I think that's part of what they use their big brain for. But as far as food sources in general, I think that they they have like three – Basic, uh, I don't know if you want to say uh, strategies or just kind of paradigms that that we can place them in. Uh, number one, you know, we have say like a red elderberry, which is something that by and large humans, um, this particular species of red elderberry, we don't really exploit it, but yet there's shrub after shrub of red elderberry. Well, bears eat them, you know, other large mammals eat them, but we don't. But if you have the ability, however, the Sasquatch stomach works, or, you know, if it's, it's if, however, it's different from ours, or even things like geophagy, where uh, different creatures will eat clay, which is a whole other interesting angle. Um, you know, there's a lot of clays around where we are. And I think it's entirely possible that they they eat earth in order to help them consume, uh, other plants that may not necessarily sit well with them otherwise.
0: Now, why would they, why would they eat the earth? I mean, I can imagine getting like certain minerals and whatnot out of the earth, but why, what sort of, uh, benefits
1: does that strategy give them? Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like as a way to like soothe their stomach, you know, so that they can actually get stuff down. Or if it's say like mylanta. Yeah, like my Lanta. Like, if you imagine that uh, if you're eating berries because you live in the wild, then maybe the berries have been there for a while. It might not sit well with your stomach. And, you know, so I don't know these things, but I'm just saying we know that other primates eat earth for various medicinal purposes. And so I, I think we have to at least consider stuff like that with Sasquatch. But somehow, one way or the other, in these various ways, I think that they have the expansive uh, of food processing ability say like of a bear and so they are consuming things that humans by and large are not touching at all but exist in oftentimes great amounts uh even just around our settlements because we're not we're not eating them you know and so that's that's one paradigm that that i think that they represent and then the other one i think like i was saying about them monitoring each valley and knowing kind of exactly what's there from season to season year to year. I think that kind of represents their um, you know early human uh, hunter gatherer style. I think that they are extremely successful in that way that they know what's edible, when, and uh, all of that. And then the third way that I talk about a lot is them as a kleptoparasite. And there's a, a really interesting book called The Stranger in the Woods. And it's, it's about a hermit in Maine. I don't know if you ever heard about this, but he had been living off grid, uh, for almost three decades. He, he wasn't like, you know, doing all this foraging and wild man kind of stuff. He was breaking into these cabins. And when I first heard about this story a few years ago, it immediately struck me the similarities with the way people describe Sasquatch, like how they're able to move so stealthily through the woods at night. And they're not even leaving footprints and how the heck do they do that? And so I think that is kind of the third component of them is that they are extremely successful at stealing food, not just from us, but all these other creatures, which, you know, kind of goes against your intuition when you say, well, this is a huge creature. How is that happening? Well, you know, here we have an example of a human that's been doing it. This guy was like five minutes away. He could smell people cooking hot dogs on the lake and people still couldn't find him for decades you know and so that that's kind of the the third food way i think that they're that they're using
0: it's entirely possible they're using all three of those
1: in combination, depending on the needs as well. Well, yeah, absolutely. And so
0: and then, this is maybe more.
1: Yeah. And, and more, but, but I'm saying, you know, this is the sort of thing that once you start piecing that together and go, okay, Hey, guess what? They're probably eating these elderberries over here, which we don't eat. Um, they probably have a sophisticated understanding of which blossoms happen to be edible right now, just for the next few weeks. Um, and plus they are monitoring all of our movements and they know who's coming and going so they can come in and sneak and you know take something out of your garden or whatever. And so they're just they're employing all sorts of different strategies and have innate capabilities that I don't think we necessarily have been you know fully understanding yet as far as how they're surviving. But when you do understand that, then it doesn't seem as ridiculous that there's this giant ape out there.
0: No, no, very uh, hominin, I would say, even go as far as to say, you know, like some sort of an offshoot human ancestor relict hominoid thing. Because, um, you know, we, we did all those things, too. I think human ancestors did every one of those things. And when I say human ancestors, I'm even talking about Homo sapiens uh, before we domesticated ourselves 15,000 years ago. We had to do pretty much all of that sort of stuff. Now, the advantage Sasquatches would have would, uh, would be, of course, their in brute strength, um, you know, and, and, when you talk about, uh, uh, kleptoparasitism, is that what the word was like stealing stuff from people? Basically. Um, it's funny you mentioned that cause literally just yesterday, I got a phone call here at the museum, um, from a woman out in Yakult. And she was saying, "Yeah, Cliff, I've been meaning to call you about two weeks ago. Um, something took the metal corrugated roof of my chicken coop that's six feet tall and bent it back a foot and a half, so it was sticking straight in the air and, and took took five of my chickens." it's like, "Oh, well, that sounds like one of the big guys, you know." So yeah, they're they're constantly stealing food from us and whatnot. But um, we would have uh, we would have done the same, I think, for uh, um, a lot of our history as a species. And you know what? Another advantage they have is their large size. And I keep looking at these, the, the you know, keep looking at sasquatches and how big they are. And I gotta think, I just gotta think that their extended intestinal tract allows them to digest food that is just garbage for most other animals, kind of like the way elk do. Um, deer and elk, for example, have vastly different food needs. Uh, deer, being the smaller of the species, have, they have to eat those highly nutritious foods that grow with sunlight hitting the forest floor, whereas elk can forage underneath the forest canopy on this low nutritional food, and the way they do it is just increasing the surface area of their intestines so the food goes through their elongated intestinal tract, longer, and that gives them more opportunity to extract the nutrients from it. And when you add to that the, the, the primate tendency for, uh, what is the word, is it cropophagia, um, basically eating their own crap um, and giving it a second run through the digestive system, I think Sasquatches have a lot of potential to take advantage of any number of those things that I just mentioned.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I I think that they are. And there's also kind of an interesting tie in there with, uh, you know, they think that as humans started cooking food, and we got uh, more compact digestive systems, that that is one of the reasons why our brains got so developed. And so having that long digestive track might actually give us more insight into why they didn't build the cities and we did. I mean, I think there's a lot of other reasons, including, you know, the the, potentially the shape of their hands and just the fact that if you, I mean, and this is kind of one of the things that I'm really interested in as far as uh, human evolution, because I think that when we finally accept that these creatures are real and then we go back through our own history and we, we look at that and we go, for, uh, for instance, there's speculation that the, uh, the short faced bear kept uh, indigenous peoples out of North America for, say, like another 20,000 years, like later than we would have gotten here. Right. And so th- this has implications. If Sasquatch came down from the mammoth steps, say, 100,000 years before we did and was well established here. What did we have to do to actually establish ourselves as a species? You know, what did the first human colonizers actually have to do as far as, you know, their levels of cooperation, their ingenuity as far as defending themselves, because obviously this thing, you know, I mean, we know how they can be intimidating towards hunters today. And and you talk about their size, like these are, there's three basic components to uh, kleptoparasites, like major categories. One is bullying, and that's where they're just going to come in and, you know, kind of club you over the head and take what you got. Uh, another one is fear and another one is being a thief. Okay. And so we, we know that through Sasquatch reports, they're using all three, you know? And so we had to compete with something that had already established these sorts of behaviors and was much larger than us. You know, so what that means for our species that we were competing against them. Um, and you know, what does that say? Like why we needed weapons, why we had to work so closely together. Um, You know, if I'm scared and hiding in the cabin with all of these things that we've got today, you know, imagine being a person who has only spears and arrows and knives to defend yourself, you know, and, and you, So it would have really drawn the human community together. And that's some of the stuff that's most fascinating to me is, you know, what has this done for our evolution as a species as far as our communication styles and our culture and everything else?
0: Yeah, Nothing evolves in a vacuum. We, uh, it's a whole ecology, essentially. It's this in- interactive web of everything working together. And it's going to be so fascinating to find, as you're saying, the way the, uh, the influence that Sasquatches have had. Not only on us, but also the other animals that are out there, you know, black bears and, you know, brown bears and elk and deer and all that other stuff, too. I mean, just for example, um, less than a decade ago, I believe, in Oregon, I can't speak for Washington. You probably know more about it than me since you live up there. Um, in Oregon, they, they stopped hunters from hunting mountain lions with dogs, right? And which is really one of the only effective ways to hunt them. You can call them in if you get lucky and stuff. But essentially, hunting them hunting with dogs was the only way to really get it done. And I'm not a hunter, so I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of hunters listen, you know far more about it than I do or ever will. But essentially, since that time, the mountain lion population has shot through the roof. It's just ridiculous with mountain lions down here now, where I live at least. I know I get... Um, I get mountain lion pictures um, on my game cams I have out of my property kind of all the time, like at least once a month. And when they're around, they're around for a couple of weeks and they disappear for a while. Um, but my neighbor, um, he hunts them, you know, he hunts them by calls, calls them, calling them in, you know, like early in the morning or uh, right, right before dark, you know. And then um, he gets one or two a year doing that because they're so prevalent here. But he might get a mountain lion. And sure enough, two weeks later, three weeks later, I'll get another picture of one on the property. There's there's just so many of them. Um, And because of that, of course, the deer and elk population have plummeted. Uh, I know a couple hundred friends of mine are really complaining about that right now. They say it's because of the mountain lions. Um, So that's just one species. You know, mountain lions playing a role in that. So what role, if any, do Sasquatches play? Certainly they have some effect, even being as rare as they are. Um, it's going to be interesting to find all these things out.
1: They absolutely do. And this is one of the reasons why it kind of led me to think that they're closely monitoring, just like humans do, where we regulate how many deer are allowed to be taken in a certain area. Um, because we we would have years where when we first got there, in fact, I kind of thought if they're really interested in us and they've been kind of hanging around, they would have to be eating more just to kind of stick around to watch us. you know. So you start thinking about this stuff like, if something was curious about our activities and our restoration, they would kind of have to run through their, uh, you know, their stash of live deer in order to do it. And and so it's, it's just, when you watch the fluctuation in the deer populations, um, where, okay, this year there's not a lot, but then they kind of build up for a couple of years and there's maybe not as much activity. And then all of a sudden there's this kind of flurry of activity and there's no deer. But I'm not finding evidence of, of, of cougar. You know, I've never seen a cougar out there. I've never seen a bear. Not to say that they're not there, but I, I don't think that they're that common. And, and the thing, I mean, do you want me to kind of get into it a little bit and finish up kind of with the bones and the gifting? You can, sure. We're just kind of rolling, man, wherever it takes us. I'm good with it. Yeah, I mean, and that's one kind of thing, big thing that it has been happening because that's become increasingly intense. And as I've known you, as you mentioned, like I'll send you texts of these different things. But um, several years ago, when I would start to notice this, it was our dog would find the bones and she'd always kind of find them out along the perimeter. You know, she'd find them in the woods somewhere just kind of right off the lot or wherever we were. And I thought, okay, you know, I guess she just finds bones over there. I mean, it, I I didn't think too much of it. And sometimes I would find it kind of interesting because it would seem like there'd be marrow sticking out. And I'm like, well, what leaves the marrow, (laughs) you know? Uh, so there were some things like that, that i found a little weird, but it wasn't until I guess about a year ago, um, a little over a year ago where they actually started showing up really, really close, um, to our trailer and and cabin. And, the the first time was I, I, gotten out there one weekend and i noticed a bone and it was like right in front of one of our vehicles and i'm like how the heck why is that right there in front of the vehicle you know but okay whatever i guess a bird could have brought it there then i go down to this other area where i had mentioned earlier where we had removed all of this uh, trash from and i was just kind of checking on things down there and i found this almost like trail of bones uh, near the creek, you know. And at first, I thought, well, maybe it's just a raccoon, and it was like washing it or something. But they had directly put it on an area where I, I actually have established all this moss for for camping on it, so that you can camp right on this bed of moss and the streams right there, and it's beautiful. And there used to be all this trash there, and so I thought, well, that's kind of crazy because. There, there were different parts of, of the deer, like part of the tail was here. And then you went through and then right in that mossy area, I found more bones. And I'm like, you know, what are the odds? Because and then the dog's looking around and she's not finding the carcass anywhere in there. And I'm like, well, what would carry it all the way in here? Where did these come from? You know, like maybe finding one bone would be one thing. But I mean, again, they were small enough, which most of these bones have, you know, early on, especially were just kind of small and it it could have been a larger bird or something like that. But then I got out there really late one night and, you know, it's like in the middle of the night and I'm walking up to go unlock the trailer. And I look down and right in front of, we have these, you know, kind of like garden beds and there's these two big bones Right there on the ground, in front of the trailer, in front of the gardens, and I mean, I could not sleep up there that night. I mean, I took like a couple quick pictures and went down to a different part of the property because it just freaked me out. Like there was, there was no way. After you know, had recently, just before, had found them in front of a vehicle. Then this other area that I'd been working on for years, this kind of weird trail of, of fresh bloody bones, you know, um, and and then I find these bigger bones that i'm looking at going i don't know what you know that's not a normal thing and so that that's actually when around that time i i was texting you and kind of and you had said well you know try to put something that indicates like what's important to you there and so i did um i created i kind of stacked up these rocks like somehow I'm gonna communicate that they understand geology, you know, and, and restoration. And I, I had a little fir tree that I had dug up and I had a little pot there. And then I had some miners lettuce, which is one of the edibles that we have like growing all over the hillsides. And I I put all that together so that I, I was trying to communicate restoration to Sasquatch, you know, let's just let's just see what happens. And I really thought nothing was gonna happen. And then one day I got up there and there was that gasket. And we think, you know, it either came—it came from some kind of large vehicle—and it was a relatively new gasket. This was not something that had been out in the environment for a long period of time. How it got there, I have no clue. But that really freaked me out because, again, I didn't think that anything was going to show up, you know. And then, like over the course of the summer, I had the whole bizarre incident with the uh, the decapitated rabbit where the dog brings up this decapitated rabbit that, I mean, it looked like a puppet and you know, you're sitting there asking yourself, and I know that rabbit was living under the cabin. Um, And I kind of saw where it looked like something had kind of like reached under there and grabbed it. You could kind of see it, but I didn't really think too much of it when I first saw it until the dog comes up with this rabbit body out of the woods. And I'm looking at it going, well, what's not going to eat the shanks? Like that's the best part you know? And it just looked like it had been the, the head ripped off and the guts ripped out and then left there. And I'm like, well, that is really bizarre. But then the even weirder part, well, this kind of happened while there was, I was doing a zoom meeting one day, you know, this is in the age of the pandemic and I was actually up there doing a zoom meeting on this particular day with a, a local environmental um, committee that, that I work with. And I, I had been kind of hearing something down in the woods and the dog, like I sent her down there while I was on the Zoom meeting. I'm like, go oh, check it out, you know? And, and she went down there and like came back up right away. And then she like would only be on the other side of me. Like she wouldn't be on the wood side of me, like the side of me, like to protect me, right? Like she was having me protect her from whatever she just barked at down in the woods. And I was like, man, that really creeps me out. So I kind of walked up to the other lot and stuff and finished up the zoom call. And that's when she brought up this weird dead rabbit. And I'm like, okay, that's freaking me out. So I'm like locking everything up, putting the tools away and whatever done for the day. And uh, then I notice her smelling something else on this adjacent lot. And I go over and I take a picture and then I figure out later it was that rabbit's stomach. And you could see you could see the clover because there was like a little, it was in really good shape, except for like one part of it had kind of been ripped open and you could see the clover that had been eating up at the cabin. And you're going, okay, what in the world It decapitates a rabbit, rips its guts out, leaves the shanks. And then like, for some reason, transports the stomach down and just leaves it right here on the lot. Like that was really weird. And, you know, I've told these stories to a lot of, I know a lot of country people, and I always really expect people to go, Oh, that happens to me all the time. And they they don't say that. You know, people will speculate on what they think it possibly could be, you know, but it, it seems to me that outside of the world of Sasquatch, these sort of things are not very common, that most people who live in the country don't find big bones on their front doorstep that have been completely stripped. Like you can tell they're relatively fresh, but they've been stripped of everything, you know.
0: Well, I, I do have one other occurrence of the rabbit. And I, maybe I told you this because I, I know you've told me about the rabbit before. Um, I work with another couple up um, east of uh, Crescent Lake in Washington. And they, they have uh, Bigfoots on their property sometimes. And, and um, they have, have had a lot of things over the last maybe you know eight or 10 years that they've lived there. They've seen these things. Their gardeners have seen these things. There's been handprints on the roof and after like a big pow on the top of the roof sort of thing. You're, and they live on a very sloped property. And they're just a lovely couple, very cooperative. And I consider them both very good friends, actually. Um, so I, I hear about these things from them and, um, the, the woman of the couple was working in the garden and they live in a very sloped property. Their house is kind of on the top of this knoll and the garden is below their home. Um, then she's out working in the, on the garden down below and stuff. And I I believe it was the next day. uh, you know how like around baby trees, um, they, they often put, uh, like a cage you know, to keep the, to keep the deer, not to keep the, the trees in from escaping. This actually keep the deer away from them. Um, well, inside one of those, those cages around the baby tree, the next day was a decapitated rabbit. Um, and there's no way, it, I mean, I think the, the on the, the, the cage sort of thing, like the, the fencing, the wire was too small for maybe, but, but whatever, a decapitated rabbit doesn't crawl in there anyway. Right. Clearly something put it there. Um, and I, that's the only other circumstance I've ever heard of somebody finding a headless rabbit anywhere. And, you know, from one perspective, like I'm sure that my wife, who loves horror films and all that stuff, if she found something like that, she would take it as a very, very bad omen. Like, oh my God, there's something going on there. Like this is this is the the stuff that that monster movies are made out of. But from a Bigfoot's perspective, I think it's an entirely different thing. Especially when you're describing like, look, the best parts were left on it. How come it wasn't eaten? I, again, I I would interpret that as some sort of gift. Honestly, it's like, yeah, you're cool. I'll give you this. You know, you probably need it. Look how thin you are compared to me. Sort of of. thing
1: you know and they would be correct in that assessment um (laughs) you know so i mean yeah i think you're right it's um it and and the thing with that particular instant if it was just the rabbit okay maybe i don't know something killed it and it was i mean and the other thing is i had been there for a couple days and the dog didn't find that rabbit until like right before we left And that's another thing that weirded me out was, well, if it's kind of been there out in the woods, you know, and I'd been all through that area and she did not find that stomach. And then there's these weird noises going on in the woods and such. It's like, what is going on here? You know, Um, the stomach thing is what really put it over the top for me. You know, it's very difficult for me to understand what, you know, bird or what came down you know, through the trees, into the woods, picked that up and carried it all the way over. And then why would they put it in the lot where people are coming and going? Why wouldn't they just take it to another bike? You know what I'm saying? Like there there's so many things when you walk through this, it's it's hard to kind of understand um, what what's going on. Um, because usually you need in order to make a good explanation for some of these events is there's got to be a whole series of other animal things happening in order to explain it
0: stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages now uh, what about sounds what i mean do you hear knocks and whoops and things like that too sometimes
1: we have had early on um we had uh, a, a couple knocking experiences um, one was when we were kind of down in the woods near the, the scarp area. Um, and my wife and I were working down there and like earlier in the week, I had this weird instance where, uh, a tree came down, like a, a dead conifer came down on the slope, just on its own while I was down there. I'm like, that is really kind of weird. I mean, I'm a woodsman. <laughs> I work out there and it's not too often you see a tree fall over on its own. I'm like, well, what the heck? How would that even be possible? And what's crazy is, and this is kind of one of the things that you know I'm realizing about them, and I, and I'm pretty sure that I've seen this through some of your work as well too. That these creatures will snake around on their bellies, uh, and and I think that you've shown this more too. Um, wasn't there like a, a famous uh, a thermal image where it's like kind of crawling around on its stomach? Yeah, yeah, it's Mike Green's thermal footage, the squeaky footage from North Carolina. Right. And and so when, when I went up where this tree came down and, you know, when you look at it, you're like, well, how could a big creature hide itself in here while I'm down here working or whatever? And when you get up there, you realize like the ferns are four feet tall. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not out of the question, but that was just kind of one weird thing that happened. And then uh, later on in the week, when my wife and I were working down there, we had this whole series of uh, kind of being surrounded by these, these knocks and different sounds that... I really still can't explain. I don't know what it was that was going on, but you would kind of hear movement in the woods um, and you would hear these different sounds kind of going off. And I, you know, to this day, I, I don't really know what that was. Um, I had heard some wood knocking in the middle of the night early on. And there was one instance where my son was up there and uh, my wife and I, we all stayed up there one weekend in the trailer and my wife and I had gone way down to the bottom. And, uh, we were, you know, getting ready to work down there. And all of a sudden he comes tearing down, like he ran all the way down this mountain road, which he had never run all the way down that road before. And he was like, dad, I, I heard some kind of, you know, knocking in the woods. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, just, you know, you're a suburb boy and you don't know and whatever. And I was going to just show him, you know, that's nothing, you know? So we went all the way back up to the top and I walked to the edge of the woods and I, I just started kind of doing the you know classic hit the, hit the wood on the tree thing. And I started hearing wood knocks back. And I mean, I, I could not believe it because when you hear stuff like that, and it's so out of the ordinary, and it sounds like it's got to be a person messing with you, you know, except you know, these woods and, and, you know, we're in the type of place where people do not wander onto other people's properties because everybody is armed and appreciates their privacy. You know, so I've never found evidence that we have people because people tell me that all the time. That's the simplest thing to discount what I'm saying is, is, well, it's people messing with you. Well, first off, if you know my neighbors, you know, you know that they're not wandering around, (laughs) you know, they barely leave their own house and their own yard, let alone come down at random times to terrify me in the middle of the night with grunts or something like this, you know.
0: Yeah, generally speaking, the people who suggest that oh, it's just your neighbors, they're not the people who live in the country. Yeah, you know, people who, people who live in the country know that that's just a, a foolish thing to do. You know, my my neighbor just recently said to me like, because uh, I don't I don't you know lock my barn a lot of times. There's not much value in there anyway, but I don't lock my outbuilding. And he says, well, he told me that you'd be a damn fool to come down our road and cause any problem whatsoever because everybody's armed. Even, even I'm armed and I'm like the local hippie weirdo, you know, like and I, even
1: I have a couple of guns running around the house, but no, nothing compared to the arsenal of everybody else on the street. Sure. And I mean, that just makes sense because people who live in the country, when you live in a remote area, uh, part of what you do, it, you know, is you provide your own security um, because it's, you know, there's the county sheriff is how far away. <laughs> but I mean, that, that was just that whole incident with that knocking. And, you know, I personally think that it was something to the effect of, When my wife and I got up and left, they were kind of communicating with each other. And that's what my son heard, because they didn't realize that he was in there, you know, because he had he had never stayed there before. And so they thought, well, when they saw the two grownups leave that I guess that was it or whatever. They certainly know your habits better than we
0: know theirs. As a last topic to go over before we part ways, because, you know, I think I have a feeling that you and I can continue talking for another three hours and we it'd be just as good as the first one. Um, but as a last sort of uh, topic to kind of cover before we, um, end the podcast here, um, for people like me or other people out there who have rural properties and potential Sasquatch habitat, what sort of basic and very generic layman sort of stuff can we do to encourage, um, the presence of Sasquatches on our property?
1: yeah i mean that is one of my big um sort of goals with this is i'm trying to just through this process of interaction see if i can get a sense at all of what they actually like you know and that's rather difficult to do when we see the wide range of habitats that they're able to exist in you know it's hard to pin down what would we don't know at this point what is optimum sasquatch habitat um but i do think that they understand like you said the intent I think that providing, uh, you know, taking care of your property, keeping it green, keeping your trees healthy, um, you know, doing that type of stuff. I think that they, I think they are more likely to be around if they see, you know, if they walk into your property and it's just like big piles of junk or this or that, or whatever. I mean, they're going to think, Hey, you're just like everybody else, you know, you're just here, you're going to leave a mess. And next thing you know, you'll be gone. And somebody else will come in and leave a mess. So I think they do have an appreciation for forest management. I think also that in in areas where we do have campers, I think that they associate Uh, and I just mean us as like Americans, I think they associate, they know this, that like once people show up and they're kind of in these tents, that those trees are going to be there. I think they understand areas that we set aside for wildlife. You know, I think they're, I think they're very aware of that. And so I think that, I think that these creatures do have a sense of stewardship, you know, and I don't think again, that, you know, they're hippie Bigfoot or anything, but just from a practical sense, like I say, when I go and I do these, basic forestry practices through the woods, you can tell all of a sudden it went from brown to green, you know? And I think if you can turn your, your property, the, the greener it is, the more food sources you have, you know, I don't do anything like leaving them apples or peanut butter or bacon or pizza or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't do that stuff. And so I'm definitely not going to suggest that people do that, but I just think that if, if people, you know, take care of habitat, that would be good for all sort of creatures You know, not, not everything. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a a fanatic about these sorts of things. Like I'm a Granger, like I understand, you know, we, we need to provide food for ourselves. We've got to have uh, land uses beyond just restoration. Like I am not advocating, you know, turning everything back wild or whatever. That's not even possible. Like we've so altered this continent that there's no, you know, natural for us just to, to turn back to, like even trying to get small changes is like, you know, so many resources and time to do that. But I just think that the more people are stewards of their property and kind of clean it up and, and try to imagine yourself, like if I was a big creature, like I think this all the time, if I was a big creature, what would I want here? Just put yourself in their shoes. So Saul, you've given us a lot to think
0: about, maybe some things to compare to our own properties and experiences that have been going on. Maybe we haven't been able to connect the dots. Is there any way for um, some of our listeners to contact you if they want to do some follow-up questioning or have anything like that going on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cliff. Um, I I do have a YouTube that I've been updating pretty regularly where I get more into these topics. You know, I've got a video where I talk about wild foods and, and all of that. Um, and that if you just Google skookum scarp sanctuary, You'll find our YouTube, and then we've also got a Patreon. And so the, you know, the YouTube is obviously free, and you can go on there and listen to, you know, and and I go out into the woods, and I have videos of of things like that, and I actually examine the bones that I'm talking about here. And then the Patreon, I kind of get a little bit more, you know, there's uh, photos of different things that have happened, and I kind of get more into. Kind of general anthropology and archaeology, and kind of what some of this stuff in popular science could mean for Sasquatch. So those are the two main two main things. Um, We've got a YouTube for Skookum Scarp, and then we've got a Patreon for it as well.
0: All right, well, fantastic. I hope our listeners go and check both of those things out um, because I think that there's a lot to learn here. This is one of those rare opportunities where you know you're basically on this property, managing it. And so are they on and doing, but on, on your various terms, you know, you on your terms and them on theirs. Um, and it's been a fascinating conversation and I'm so stoked that we finally got together and got you on the show. So I really appreciate your time and your knowledge and your friendship.
1: Great. Thanks. I really appreciate everything that you've done. Uh, Cliff, and it's been a really good time, uh, talking with you tonight. Yeah. We'll try to get you back on with the Bob sometimes. So I know Bob is going to have some
0: questions for you, but all right, man, you take it easy. And thanks a lot again, Saul. Thanks Cliff. All right, guys. Um, I've been trying to get Saul on for like over a year, honestly, just, you know, schedules and flakiness and elastic senses of time on my part and everything like that. I'm so glad we finally got him, um, on the show because I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed it. I love hanging out with Saul and learning what's going on and there's all sorts of weird subtleties. Um, Almost like haunting his property, bones left around that headless rabbit thing. That's the the wasn't the, as I mentioned that I'd heard that before um, in the context of Sasquatch. So I was really excited to hear that. Yeah, just so much going on. And again, I, I know uh, of other Sasquatch sightings and other long term witness stuff in the same general area. This area is rich with activity, and I'm really thrilled to have uh, Saul in the Rolodex, so to speak, so I can find out what's going on with him and any any new updates. And of course, if more stuff is happening, we'll be happy to have Saul back on the program because I would like Bobo to speak to him eventually. So with that, um, I guess next time we talk, um, I've got some really good guests coming up um, and hopefully next time we talk, uh, we'll learn a little bit more about what Bobo went to investigate tonight, which of course was why he wasn't on the show. Remember, there was a sighting today and he's out somewhere west of Willow Creek as I speak, hopefully casting some prints, but definitely looking in an area where a Sasquatch was seen earlier today. So everybody, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Um, Bobo usually does this part. So, you know, hit like and push buttons and do stuff like that to encourage yourself and others to come back and listen for more. We really appreciate your support, your kindness, your kind words, and your respect for Sasquatches. And until next time, keep it Squatchy.